0: You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, Can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. It's time for Ride On with Julie Goodnight. Since the last time we recorded, we have had a lot of changes around my barn in the last month. First, and kind of sadly, we said a final goodbye to one of our dear old friends, Roger Dodger, the best uh, quarter horse ever. He was may have been the best cow horse I've ever ridden. Um, Dodger was 30 years old, and he lived out a good long life. And he, uh, we had the pleasure of having him here around my farm in his final years, um, but his first 13 years were as a true Texas ranch horse. He came off a big ranch uh, where he was bred and trained and used as a ranch horse. Actually, he belonged to the ranch foreman, uh, so he did a lot of ranch work until he was 13. That's when I bought him at a performance horse sale. When I bought him, he was a hot-blooded, power-packed 13-year-old, and he was, in fact, way too much horse for the average rider. I had kind of bought him with the idea of reselling him, but I mainly bought him because I really liked the horse. It was beautiful Palomino gelding, probably the first uh, one of the first Palomino uh, horses I've ever um, kept for a while. I've bought a few and resold them. They, they of course sell fast because they're so pretty. But this horse I kept for a while. He was an expert at all phases of cow work, immediately adjusting to whatever job you asked him to do, whether it was herd work, cutting, roping, boxing. It was amazing because a lot of that stuff, particularly roping, uh, I was learning for the first time myself as I was riding this expert horse, and it amazed me how he could change his focus and he would immediately adapt to the particular task at hand. In other words, he wasn't a specialist like we think of today, like a cutting horse is. He could do all of it and he would just immediately shift his uh, performance according to what the job that needed done was. So he, he taught me a lot about a horse's capability. He was probably one of the most powerful horses I've ever taken down the fence. If you're not familiar with that term, I suggest you Google it. Um, Google reined cow horse and going down the fence, and you'll, you might get an understanding, but it is um, a certain kind of cow work that you do, which happens to be pretty high speed as you uh, take a cow down a long fence and then turn the cow back. Um, It can be high speed, big athletic movements of the horse, but it it primarily takes an incredible amount of courage from the horse and he has to be working with you in a partnership. It cannot, this is not an action of the horse that can be entirely dictated. You can tell him when to do it. You can't exactly make him do it. And uh, he was one of the best cow horses I ever rode. And I after I bought him, I realized right away he was uh, too hot for me to be able to resell. So during the time I had him, I just wanted to detune him as a horse, get him used to a slower pace of life, get him used to uh, what life would be like as a recreational horse. And uh, then I sold him to one of my best friends, Lucy. Uh, Many of you know Lucy because she travels with me to clinics and expos a lot, And Lucy bought that horse from me, and she climbed all over the mountains of Colorado with that horse. She and her family own a ranch in the mountains of southern Colorado. She's uh, climbed all over those mountains with the horse. She also had a place up in Steamboat Springs in northern Colorado, where she not only did a lot of trail riding in the mountains, but she also had friends that were cattle ranchers so she helped them out a lot. Uh, he was always the star of the show anytime there was cow work to be done and then ultimately he came back here to live at my ranch oh, about five, seven years ago. By then he was ready for retirement. He was old and getting frail and uh, we just let him lived out his retirement years um, lived here the rest of his life in in great style and we said goodbye to him recently, and we're gonna really miss that horse around here. If you check out my blog, um, if you look at the November Horse Report, you can see some great photographs of this most excellent horse. Another big transition in our herd recently occurred when my young horse Pepperoni went to Texas with my dear friend, Nancy and um, this was not a sad occasion for me because i was not saying a permanent goodbye to the horse nancy and i have actually we've been friends for a long long time Um, i know her to be an excellent rider and somebody that takes you know utmost care of her horses and she and i have actually shared a few horses in the past and when i bought pepperoni she was enthralled with him She's very enamored of his grandsire, Pep De Boonsmall. And when I bought him as a two year old, she made me promise back then that if I ever decided to sell him that I would give her the first consideration. And of course I did. And, you know, now that his training is nearly complete, I'm ready to move on to a younger and smaller horse. By the way, um, the horse was getting up in the 15-1 hand range, and in my opinion, that's way too big for me. But also, I just like training young horses. It's what I love to do. And um, don't get me wrong, I love riding finished horses. They're a lot of fun. But what really is entertaining to me is training young horses. So I'm ready to kind of move on to a younger horse. And the great news is that Nancy and Pepper are totally in love with each other, um, Nancy and mine's longstanding agreement is that the horses I share with her are our horses, um, and uh, not just hers, and that she will keep me apprised of their progress, and she will I know that she will make them available to me whenever I'm doing clinics or events near her. So that's how, in fact, I came to ride Pepper last week when I was doing presentations down in Fort Worth at the CHA International Conference. So luckily for me, I still have my great little mare. She's just the right size for me at 14.0 hands. Annie is a quick, quick-footed quick little reined cow horse, and it will be fun to have more time to ride her. I've, I've slacked off on riding her for a while because I've been focusing on training Pepper. So I'm looking forward to getting back in sync with her and uh, probably be doing a lot more bridleless riding this winter, so uh, I'm, I'm ready to get back to that. Slowly but surely, my travel schedule is beginning to resume its normal pace. I wasn't sure that was ever gonna happen again after the uh, shutdown that occurred in March of 2020, but we're getting there. Next year, I'm going to be doing four programs at the Seaglazy U Ranch, one in the spring, That's the Women's Riding and Wholeness Retreat that I co-teach alongside my friend and colleague, Barbara Schulte. Then in the fall, we'll have two ranch riding adventures. This is uh, one more than normal, and it's really great news for all of you people that have been trying for years to get into this clinic which stays in a perpetual state of full because it's so much fun. So we're doing a second session of that next year. That's going to open up quite a few slots for people. So you can find out more about that by going to CLAZYU.com. That's the letter C, L-A-Z-Y, the letter U, -U CLAZYU.com. Also, we be doing next fall there at the CLAZYU.com. Uh, My second uh, time doing the Horsemanship Immersion Program, this is an intensive study of all aspects of horsemanship. Next year, we're going to extend it uh, a day, so it'll be a five-day program, and I'm super excited about that because it's going to make the schedule flow much better, and we'll be able to squeeze in just a few more workshops and really cover a lot of great information there. I'm also happy to announce that I'm headed back to Ireland in the fall of 2022 with the Connemara Equestrian Escapes. And this will be a small group experience with daily horsemanship clinics, plus cultural tours, plus riding on the wild Atlantic coast. It is an incredibly beautiful country. I love the spirit of the Irish people, and we are really excited to be going back there with Connemara Equestrian Escapes in 2022. You can find out more information on my website about that. Of course, I have a full slate of horse expos coming up in 2022 with stops in Colorado, Oregon, Idaho, and Wisconsin. For more information on my 2022 schedule, please visit juliegoodnight.com events. And while you're there, check out my online training resources, the training curriculums, and the personalized coaching programs that we offer. Plus, we've got innovative grooming tools, tack, bits, training equipment, and videos online. By the way, these make great Christmas gifts. They're affordable, made in the USA, and best of all, in stock and ready to ship to you today at shop.juliegoodnight.com. I'm excited to have a special guest today, Dr. Barbara Page. She's the founder of the International Foundation for Equine Podiatry Research. We're going to talk about hoof health and disease prevention and her fascinating research on feral horses and how we can apply those lessons to domestic horses. This is a fascinating and important topic and one we all stand to learn a lot from. My special guest today is Dr. Barbara Page, and we're discussing the magic and mysteries of the equine hoof. Born in Denver, Colorado, Dr. Barbara Page received her doctorate of veterinary medicine in 1977 from Colorado State University. I'm proud to say one of the premier vet schools in the world. I think I can easily claim that. She was the first woman to practice veterinary medicine in the state of Colorado. In 1988, she started a private practice, which led her to build the Colorado Equine Clinic in 1994, where she continues to practice today. Committed to her continuing education, Dr. Page was certified by the American Farrier Association in 1994 to advance her education in farrier science. Additionally, she became certified with the International Veterinary Chiropractic Association and also received certification with the Equine Lameness Prevention Organization. And in 1994, Dr. Page founded the Equine Wellness Foundation. It's a 501c3 with the mission to improve the bond between horses and people through the research and treatment of foot disease. Also in 1994, Dr. Page started her groundbreaking research on the form and function of the equine foot. She currently enjoys riding horses in Western and trail disciplines, which is actually a continuation of her early years as a hunter jumper rider uh, here in the Rocky Mountain region. I first learned about Dr. Page's veterinary practice a couple of years ago because a very dear friend of mine required her horse, her champion show horse, required some rather severe treatment. It was a pretty radical deal, but Dr. Page saved that horse's foot. Um, She has gone on to rehabilitate and she actually showed that horse at the Appaloosa Worlds this year. And then I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Page in person because she came to ride with me this fall at my ranch riding clinic at Sea U. So I personally have firsthand knowledge that she is a top-rated equine podiatrist as well as an excellent equestrian. Dr. Page, thank you so much for taking your time away from your busy schedule and joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Julie, and thank you for that very... Uh...
1: Nice introduction. I appreciate it. It really was a treat uh, seeing you at your class. The detail and knowledge that you have is just spectacular. I enjoyed it very much.
0: Well, thank you. Say, before we get too far into uh, the down and dirty, shall we say, on equine feet, I wanted just to ask you a few general questions because I, in in some ways it's just because I'm curious about your career you know, I work a lot with the college students at C U in the equine science program. A lot of them are going on to major in veterinary medicine or, or what have you, a variety of things in the horse industry. So I'm always curious about uh, the trajectory of people's careers. So how did you end up as an equine podiatrist? What does that mean exactly as a specialist? Um, what drove you there? And uh, like... How many equine podiatrists are there out there? Well,
1: equine podiatry doesn't have a certification like they do in humans. Uh, Equine podiatry is composed of veterinarians that are interested in the foot and spend uh, more time diagnosing and treating foot conditions than most veterinarians do. Just like you have colic surgeons and you have... Um, preventive medicine and dentists, that podiatry is just a, a certain field that certain people enjoy and some don't. So how I got into it was it's, you've always heard the saying that necessity is the mother of invention. And that's the way it was for Uh-oh. me getting into the foot because I was young, you know, people weren't used to seeing women practice and the clients would call, oh, my horse is lame and, I'd do the diagnostics and write a prescription for the farrier. These poor farriers, they'd look at this prescription and they knew that I was wrong. But the client was depending Mm -hmm. on me, the doctor, and that was a quagmire. And it was a problem. And so after many contentious uh, interactions, I thought, man, you know, what's the deal? Should I quit being a veterinarian? Can I do this? What are we going to do? And then I thought, well, maybe it's my problem and maybe I don't know enough about the horse's foot. So I started attending um, farrier and veterinary meetings in Kentucky mostly and found that the foot was my passion, absolutely my passion. So it was a fortuitous thing for me to have learned so little about podiatry and veterinary school. We didn't even learn how to take the shoe off a horse. In veterinary school. Hmm. And here we were diagnosing the part of the horse that has more nerves in it than any other part of the horse with very little information and leaving the treatment to the farriers. So that's the way I got started. And, and uh, it's been a good journey.
0: Your venture, uh, you became certified as a farrier and in, in order to you know, get more education and hands-on experience. Did you then do your own farrier work? Did you do farrier work for others? So the reason I
1: became certified as a farrier is because I wanted to walk a hundred miles in their shoes. I wanted to understand how to get along with them because they were going to treat my patients. If I wanted to be successful and help the horse and left the treatment up to them, I needed to understand how to walk in their shoes. So, that was the whole purpose of that. Um, I had no intention
0: on shoeing horses. That's a pretty amazing thing because, you know, as a lifetime trainer of horses, I've always recognized, and also I I always grew up in, I I lived a lot in areas where there were racetracks and, which meant a lot of equine vets and a lot of really good farriers. So, you know, even as a kid, I recognized the value of the relationship between the farrier and the veterinarian. Um, but that's a special, that's a specialty farrier in a way. You know, somebody that has that kind of professional relationship with a veterinarian where they can actually do um, th- advanced therapeutic things with horses.
1: It, it, it is difficult. Farriers are visual uh, people. They learn to look at the solar surface of a horse and can memorize the shape of that so well in their minds that they can go to the Mm -hmm. anvil and they can make a shoe that exactly fits the solar surface of that horse. That's pretty Mm -hmm. amazing. And they develop that skill because they need to not go back and forth between the foot and the anvil all day long. (laughs) Veterinarians are... Written people, you know, we read books, we read articles, we uh, take tests, and so to uh, communicate between a visual um, professional and a literal professional is a, is a difficult. And as we go further here, I'll give you some of the ways that have helped me in in um, bridging that communication difference between the veterinarian and the farrier.
0: Yeah. So, and you know, that brings me to the next question. I wanted to. Well, first of all, I wanted to find out how many equine podiatrists are out there. Like, let's just say in the state of Colorado, are there any other vets that consider themselves equine podiatrists? Uh,
1: There are people that um, there are a couple of farriers that have become veterinarians. Ah. And so mm-hmm. they, that's what they do almost exclusively. Most of the problems, the literature will tell you, sadly enough, that they are, 87% of the horses have something wrong with their feet. 87%. I'm,
0: I'm in no way surprised by that.
1: No. And, and that's so far and away higher than other parts of the horse's body that that alone is mm-hmm. one reason I've delved into some research mm-hmm. because those numbers just, means there's something we don't know there's a lot that we don't know so there are not
0: people well i remember when we were at the clinic i asked you if um laminitis was still the number two killer of horses behind colic which Mm -hmm. of course pretty much only kills domesticated horses and same i guess same thing with laminitis we're going to find out more about that later but um You said, well, depending on how you calculate the numbers, that foot diseases of foot could easily be the number one killer of horses.
1: Yes, ma'am, it sure can.
0: So that brings me to the next set of questions, which was in in your practice, in your veterinary practice, and I think you have an associate uh, vet one or more in your practice that you probably do a, a range of, Veterinary equine practices, but as an equine podiatrist, what do you typically do in a day? What, uh, you know, how I know the other day you were uh, delayed in surgery. Um, how often are you performing surgeries? Um, what does a day look like for you? And what are the most common problems that you see? Uh,
1: the most common problems that any veterinary is going to see is musculoskeletal system. And again, there's, I think, in forthcoming improvements in this part of the horse, but that's our biggest situation. Um, Most of all I do now is lameness work and podiatry work. Um, My junior associates are doing more of the preventative work, colics, uh, isolation cases. So that's just because of developing my skills and having practiced for 40, 40 plus years. So for me, it's mostly sure. mostly bending over, <laughs> picking up horses' feet, <laughs> hoof testing them, uh, blocking them, radiographing, ultrasound, just the in the detailed diagnostics. The thing that helps us quite a bit, and one of the things I want to bring up to your audience is that, as we mentioned, the difference between the visual and the written uh, ways of learning. The best way for us to help a horse is when the veterinarian and the farrier and the owner and the horse meet together. And so often when the farriers are at my clinic, we will have the owner, the diagnostics may have been done before, but then we'll have the owner come to the clinic with the horse we hear from the owner, what's the environment? What's the job of the horse to be? Is this a reining horse? Is this a jumping horse? Those necessitate different types of shoes, different needs. that We need to help the horse's foot do. And then we can look at that foot together and then using that work together for the trim, understand what the radiographs are telling us to do. And most importantly, after the horse is shod, We can check our work by taking another radiograph, seeing whether we really do have a normal hoof pastern axis. Have we really improved the angulation? And then we walk the horse to say, is the horse moving better? So most of these horses, after the shoeing process, will be sounder when they leave the clinic than when they came in. That should be said of anything. Course, with colleagues should feel better when they leave than when they come to the hospital, right? But then we're able to to see if we, in truth, the treatment of the horse through the horse's foot has made a difference. So that's been a really beneficial thing to get some of these horses turned around into the healing phase of the foot problem, as opposed to a band aid or a, a you know a temporary help.
0: Absolutely, and if you don't mind, I just. Thought of this, but I I think you can go back in your memory. Uh, My friend I alluded to earlier, Marianne, we both know well, and her horse. uh, I she was sending me photographs regularly, and you know, explaining everything to me secondhand of what was going on with the horse's foot and uh, what you were doing to treat it. Uh, And so, could you kind of just describe that whole event? Uh, I don't know how. Highly typical that was, but to me, it speaks to, wow, there's really a lot we can do to help horses that, that have diseases of the foot.
1: Yeah, Julie, that was a, boy, that was a lucky deal. Um, this horse had white line disease, which is a fungal infection, very rare in most parts of Colorado. Um, he had had this for a year, and it had come back in one foot. And when the horse came to us, this disease had, had eroded through the lamina almost up to the hoof wall, and the hoof had rotated, meaning the coffin bone and the hoof wall were no longer next to each other. I was quite concerned that we would lose this horse altogether. I contacted uh, the farrier at Cornell knowing that they deal with this disease more often than we do to find out. They said, oh, well, actually, no, I "I started off going back through some of the books that I have. And here's a guy that wrote the chapter on white line disease. I said, well, great, let's find out what he can do to help me here. He was at Cornell. I called Cornell. He had left long ago. So I used LinkedIn and found this guy. And lo and behold, bless his heart if he didn't answer me, and it was important because the directions of the medication that we use on the label of the medication are not correct. And he gave us the right, correct medication because what you do is you make this medication with a little bit of vinegar, it becomes a gas. And it, it's the gas that is able to then to penetrate into the depths of this hoof wall to kill this, this wow. pathology. And, and then, of course, the owner helped us. That horse stayed at the clinic for nine months, terribly expensive for people. I said, all right, we're going to decrease the price on this, but you're going to have to help us treat this horse. And Marianne came twice a week and she soaked that horse's foot. And so she did the treatment. So we kind of boarded him. And uh, lo and behold, if that horse didn't make 100% recovery, even the rotation went away. So it was a lucky wow. deal to be able to find this fellow. It was wonderful to have an owner that cared enough about her horse to come treat the horse, so she could afford to get him treated. It was still expensive, but it, it turned out wow. nicely. It took a, It took all of us, and it worked out well.
0: Now the, the I know that you have worked um, particularly in your research areas with Gina of which is a, a renowned farrier. Um, also from here in Colorado. And I've always followed his works since, well, let's just say for decades. <laughs> and um, I was curious about the farriers that you work with. You were talking about the importance of that relationship between farriers and vets and how it, and, and plus the owner and how, and Marianne's case was a perfect example of that. I'm curious about the farriers you work with in your practice. Do you have, um, shall we say, a stable full of them, or is it one person in particular you work with? Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, th- the
1: fellow that works with us now is one that was involved with the wild horse work that I did in the um, 1994 and through 1996. And the reason I bring that up is because the Opportunity that we had to see these feet, it gave us a visual image of a biomechanically uh, facilitated tissue. It, and, and so we had an image. We had a, a picture of the solar surface. We had that vision that then we could try to put onto our domestic horses because we had seen the symmetry, we'd seen the balance, we'd seen it, it it's just hard to visualize hard to verbalize because you see it and you just know it's right. You know, you mm-hmm. you get that perfectly soft counter departure and you just know it's right. And and this was the same kind of a deal. You had this foot that everybody could say, wow. That, that, that just feels good. It just feels right. It just, it just was there. Um, most, you know, it was long ago. So some of the farriers are, are uh, retired now. I still work with some of those farriers that were involved with some of that work. Um, the other farriers that we work with are ones that want to learn. And they come and we work together and work hand in hand and, and, um, and you know, spend a lot of time on one horse radiographing, re-radiographing, trying to get it right so that we have a, a feel and an image for that particular horse.
0: You've been talking a lot about the use of horseshoeing uh, as a therapeutic technique. Do all horses need shoes? Um,
1: no, they don't. So here's what, how I answer that question. Why do we as people wear shoes? We wear shoes because our hurts our feet if we walk around without shoes on. So in the domestic world for horses, they have different surfaces, and those feet have not developed calluses because they aren't moving sufficiently Develop enough calluses to protect those feet. I saw people in Indonesia that had never worn feet, shoes ever in their lives. And their feet look different than our feet, but the surface of the road, the surface of the sidewalk, the surface of their houses, the surface of everything is exactly the same. It's hard, dirt surface. So we wear shoes to protect our feet from pain, the environment, the heat. And horses need to do the same thing. It's a hard thing for us. We We like our horses to not wear shoes. But most of our horses are better off in shoes in this Colorado environment when it's hot and it's hard and that's usually in where we are from April until October
0: yes i always say and answer to that question there's a reason why they call it the rocky mountains that's right <laughs> and even our horses the the only surface we have on our entire ranch that is ro- a rock free zone is our indoor arena because we spent an ungodly amount of money to prepare a sub base uh, there that would, uh, you know, keep the footing pure. And even in their pens, you just can't eliminate the rock. It's it's really there's far more rock than soil here. I live up in the mountains, so it's even more so. And then when we take them on the trails, of course, sometimes it's nothing but rock, and it is. Uh, you know I, I it is true and i this is going to be a great segue into your research on feral horses which i'm super excited to hear more about but i'd like to remind people that in you know horses may range in this country in the mountains um although they you know they prefer to be in the plains and also they wouldn't be forced to go on particular paths that were difficult Carrying you know two hundred pounds on their back, so it's not so much that their horses, their feet aren't capable, as that we are pushing them into areas that they wouldn't really naturally go, or if they were trying to protect their feet, they might take a different path.
1: That's true. I agree with that. Remember, one of the things I like to tell people is that horses are such willing creatures that they've allowed us to domesticize them, ride them, do, you know, so many different things with them. But they are wild animals. And the more we can understand how they evolved over 50 million years as wild animals, the better their health is in the domestic environment. They evolved by walking for 20 miles a day right here in this part of the world over semi-arid land, 20 miles they had to go to get enough food to sustain themselves. So for that foot to move over 20 miles every day, that foot evolved from three toes to one toe so they could move faster. But the tissues in the foot and the way that foot um, evolved became very efficient for moving long distances. Our horses don't move that much anymore. You know, they're not, we don't ride them 20 miles a they're
0: day. They're couch potatoes. <laughs> huh? Yours may. They're couch potatoes. They're
1: couch potatoes, exactly. And so that doesn't help the stimulate the blood flow in the foot. It doesn't help stimulate the wearing off of the hoof capsule. Uh, we put shoes on them to protect them. And so we're now starting a vicious downward cycle until some of this work that we've done, which I think has helped quite a few horses and hopefully will help more in the future.
0: Well, tell us about... I know you started this research, you know, almost 30 years ago. Tell us a little bit about the research you conducted, and then we can get into the lessons learned from
1: that. Um, so I did work quite a bit with Gene Ovenick, and he came here after I'd been going to the Ferrier seminars understood what these guys were doing, understood how to even bend the metal in the forge, which was not anything I ever intended to do and have not done. And Gene spoke and realized that what he was saying at that meeting made more sense anatomically. That was in, I don't know, whenever. He then came here to my place and had a seminar in 1995. I think it was March and brought a lot of horses in that were lame. I'd been working on them for a long time. Shot on those horses, went sound. The, the proof was in the pudding. It was results-driven. There was a gather in Craig that same fall. And so I went up to see the gather outside of Craig. But Craig is, is you know, what, five hours from us. And the most dramatic thing, and there's a picture in some of your slides. These wild horses all had feet that looked alike. Within one horse, among the horses, their feet all looked alike. And I was not used to seeing that in the domestic world where the feet are different. They look different. The, you know, carpuses look the same in the domestic world, hawks look the same, thought walks look the same, but the feet in the horses, most of our domestic horses are different within the same horse and among each other. And yet they were the same mm-hmm. in the wild. So, there, you know, right there, there's a factor that, wow. That's, you know, there's something, something going on here we don't know.
0: There's some physics there we don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> because, of course, nobody is mm-hmm. trimming these horses' hooves mm-hmm. and spending hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars a year to keep their feet healthy.
1: Well, that's right. And, and these were, you know, these horses were walking miles and miles and miles. And I'll tell you, when these wild horses go into captivity, their feet change within weeks because they're not moving them against the environment. Hmm. At that gather, very unfortunately, a mare died during the gathering process. And, you know, it breaks our hearts when this happens. And the people doing the gathering that have been doing this for many years just came to me with tears in their eyes and, and said, "Barrow, this, this mare broke her neck, and they allowed me to have her limbs We needed to try to do something with the loss of this mirror. And was there anything good that could come from it? So I took her limbs and um, wanted to keep them fresh. So I went back into Craig, into town, got a styrofoam container, ice, and didn't want them in my hotel room because they would not be cold enough. So I put them outside underneath the light in the parking lot of a Holiday Inn to be sure nobody would steal these things and checked
0: on them all night the <laughs> long. Wouldn't that have been a rude Wouldn't awakening if they stole that box?
1: <laughs> and then uh, called all the the uh, butchers the next day and found one that would allow me to cut those limbs apart into his shop. And again, I needed to do it when they were fresh. Took these guys some, a couple of cases of beer, radiographed, uh, measured, photographed. And one of the picture of this mare is on the slide deck that I sent you. And it, it was uh, just astounding what we found. So the gatherers then were kind enough. I gave them a blank check, a box, a label, and any horse that they lost during the process, which was dictated by the Bureau of Land Management, they would, bless their hearts, they would drive four hours to the post office, they're so far away, one way, in order to send these limbs to be overnight mail. And then I would continue Mm -hmm. the process of measuring, photographing, dissecting, radiographing. And we found a lot of consistencies in the wild horses. I did the same process on domestic horse feet, and I did not find consistencies in the domestic horse feet and did in the wild horse feet. So we decided to take one of the consistencies and apply that to domestic horse to say, well, what happens? Is this just a wild horse phenomenal? Or what happens if we... I'll take the same thing that we're seeing in the wild and apply it on the domestic horse foot. And that one that we took was where the foot leaves the ground, called hoof enrollment or breakover. Radiographed domestic horse feet, had the farrier apply this hoof enrollment in the same place it was in the wild, which was inside the white line, heresy in the farrier world, hmm. re-radiograph these feet and consistently statistically found that the hoof-pastern alignment improved and the navicular bone moved up on the limb, decreasing the strain on the suspensory ligaments of the navicular bone.
0: Hmm.
1: This was the first paper that showed a consistent way to improve the hoof-pastern malalignment alignment which is a problem that's been written about for the last 200 years in veterinary textbooks all over the world. So that was a nice um, scientific thing. It also told us that there are natural laws in nature. And if we don't follow those natural laws, we will have pathology. And this law was that the inertia or the energy the horse needs to do, the tendons, the ligaments, the joints, to get that foot off the ground is equal to the weight of the horse times the distance from the motion of the coffin joint to where that foot leaves the ground. So the longer that distance is, like a long toe, the more energy it takes to get the foot off the ground, and that brings a lot of our diseases Hmm. that we see in the foot.
0: Sure, and all the stress to the soft, Tissues as well. That's right. Up the leg. That's
1: right. Arthritis, coffin joint arthritis, pubicular ligament problems. It's, it's a problem.
0: Now I'm looking at these photographs that you were so kind to share with us, and and by the way, to our listeners, we're going to provide you a link to these uh, photographs. There's about uh, less than a dozen of them that very clearly show all these things you're talking about, Dr. Page. The first one I went to, not the first, but I think it was the second one you referred to was the photograph of the symmetry that you see in feral horses compared to, to, you don't even see the same shape in um, two of the same feet on the same horse in in domestic horses. As soon as I looked at that photograph of the feral horse feet, that shape immediately was familiar to me. And uh, from and you know, I've, of course, been around a lot of mustangs through the years, particularly living out here in the West. And um I've had opportunities to um, visit some of the holding facilities and stuff. so that that natural shape is, um while it's very familiar to me in terms of feral horses, It's also clearly different than what we see if you walk into any barn in this country that I know of and just start parading horses through um, what you're going to see their feet look like. The other thing that really struck me was these biomechanics um, explaining uh, just what you were talking about, alignment of the pastern and and um, the more natural balance in the horse and how that brings alignments to the joint. These photographs are very clear. And it's interesting, you referred to the, um, how far- farrier science was a visual art and the farrier needed to be able to look at the foot and then translate what he sees to the forge and to the anvil. And um, these visual pictures that you've shared with us, also make what you're talking about um, much easier to understand. Although I was following you just fine, the pictures really enhance it. So again, to our listeners, just go to the show notes, wherever you are listening to this podcast from, you'll find show notes uh, right right there. That'll give you a link to this uh, slide deck that shows you these photographs. So you recognize, so did you say un- uh, tell me again the un- unrollment of the foot. Was that the right term?
1: It's You'll see it as hoof unrollment or
0: mm-hmm. breakover. Yeah, how soon the horse breaks over, where that breakover point mm-hmm. is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you Once, identified, you isolated that as a characteristic that was common to all these uh, feet in the feral herds, and that being worthy of something that was worthy of study and that so and you found out all of this about the alignment of the pastern and the pressure um on the coffin bone and all that so how did you then bring that information to what we do with domesticated horses
1: yeah so uh we did that by making a lot of mistakes <laughs> <laughs> so trial and
0: error we call error. that
1: <laughs> these wild horse feet work against the consistent environment it's about the environment. our domestic horse feet hmm. are in a different environment so that means that the mechanics are going to be different against that environment therefore the hoof enrollment position is going to vary it's going to vary on the size of the foot. It's going to vary whether there is a pad on that foot or not. It's going to vary on what surface that foot is working in. On this study that, that makes we did, sense. Uh, wild horses, the hoof enrollment is a quarter of an inch ahead of the tip of the coffin bone. Tip of the coffin bone is the standard. We need to roll around that hard bone surface. We apply that same distance to the research that we did on those uh, domestic horses. When I use it practically on my performance horses, I need to, number one, appreciate the weight of the horse. Number two, appreciate the job of the horse. Number three, appreciate the environment the horse is working in. Most horses have too long of a toe But I'll tell you, when that toe is brought back too much the other way, we get the reversal of a low hoof-pastern axis and get a high hoof-pastern axis. So it's about balance, it's about symmetry, it's about biomechanics. The movement of the horse's foot is like a bicycle, and the axle is the center of rotation around the coffin joint, And the hoof wall are the spokes. And if the hoof wall is too long at the toe, we have a long spoke. And then we have a hoof wall that may be a shoe that's too short or the hoof wall is too angled at the heel that will give us a short spoke. So this horse is going through that coffin Mm -hmm. joint with every step that they make. I'm hoping that one of the photographs you can see, which is a picture of a wild horse with the spokes drawn in yellow from the center of articulation, compared to a domestic horse with spokes drawn. Yes, I'm looking
0: at the the two photographs. They're very clear and really, I think, without seeing them, I I think your description is excellent. And of course, I I know a little bit about. the mechanics of the gait of the horse and the foot, the anatomy of the foot. Um, so your description made sense to me, but the photographs really bring it home. And again, you'll be able to um, get these the slide deck from the show notes if you're a listener. So, yeah, so that shows you that bicycle motion that you're talking about and the efficiency of that. And it it, it also makes me a little squeamish to think about how many horses' feet, Aren't matching this kind of balance, and what kind of problems and, and inflammation and pain that's causing on up the leg of the horse?
1: Oh, don't get me started. We'll be here forever. <laughs> I could, I can show you some really amazing videos um, from the work that we did this summer of the energy that you can see go through all of the muscles way up in the shoulder difference between that horse landing heel first or that horse landing flat footed. So you're exactly right, Julie. And and this work that we did was on the front foot only. The hind foot has not had a, a study such as this. And I think it's more important for the hind foot as the hind foot is the power, the hind end is the power The anatomy is different in the hind limb than the front, although the anatomy books will tell you differently. But it is significantly different from a functional anatomical standpoint. And I see a lot of problems in stifles, in sacroiliac joints, in lumbar joints that Mm. I think are made worse because of um, our lack of knowledge of where hoof enrollment is best suited for biomechanics in the hind limb.
0: Mm-hmm. One of these photographs in your slide deck is shows the, the normal hoof-pastorn alignment on the left and the low alignment on the right. And first of all, I think it's pretty clear for, from a balance point of view, but I couldn't help but notice the horse on the right with the white legs, how much um, swelling and puffing is in his tendons, um above the fetlock and with that low slung foot and that long toe is that pretty normal
1: it is pretty normal and here's the fun part i took those pictures yesterday for this wow that uh. white horse lives here and was shot in our shop okay Mm. By our he just guy. grows up, his foot grows that way. And so what happens as the hoof wall grows, which is just a fingernail, right? It's the horse's fingernail
0: mm-hmm.
1: It becomes this shape. That's why in the wild where they walk twenty miles, they wear that off without a shoe. In our domestic situation, if the shoes are on too long, this is what will happen. This horse started with a normal hoof pasture axis and became a low of pasture and access because the owner isn't ever around and never says anything to anybody, and the horse just sits in the pasture and doesn't get ridden and then suddenly ends up with this long toe, right? So mm-hmm. this is the natural thing that happens when horses are fed and don't have to forage for their food 20 miles a day. They get an, a loaf of pasture and access.
0: Mm. So I have so many questions, and um, I I know I can't ask them all. But one thing I I really wanted to, to get from you, and I know it's a hard question to answer, but I often tell people in my riding clinics that, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, if I could only teach one thing, one thing to riders that would help horses everywhere, all over the world it would be to slow down the use of their hands, just slow down any rain usage that they do at all, slow it down. If you could tell horse owners everywhere, just your average horse owner, a recreational horse, if there's one thing they could do to prevent um, pain or suffering or any kind of disease or illness in the feet of their horses, what would it be? Is it putting on expensive goop on their feet all the time, uh, cleaning them out more, <laughs> or what? how they feed them? You tell me, what would the one thing be?
1: The One thing I would do is let the water trough uh, run over with water so there's mud around the bottom. This is Colorado, right? Mud around the bottom of that water trough. So when those horses walk up to get water, they pack that mud into the air pockets of their foot. And that you'll see that they'll get a nice little mound, a nice little dome shape of that mud to the bottom of their foot. And then don't pick that mud out. Leave that in there because it increases surface area. It really it aids in hoof unrollment because it's a dome. I mean, you pick your feet, horse's feet up and look at it. It's, it's awesome. If a horse lands toe first, the mud will be packed in the toe of the horse. Normally, it should pack around the entire surface of the sole in a nice dome. So, and and not pick their feet out. People say, "Oh my gosh, what if there's a rock in my horse's foot?" And I say, "Well, they'll tell you they'll limp, and then when they limp, <laughs> then you take, the, then you pick the." Pick it out of their feet. What if my horse got manure on wow. their feet? Well, you need to pick the manure out, but we're talking about leaving in the a, a nice clay packing.
0: That is so interesting that you say that. And I feel so validated because I have always been an advocate of having a mud hole around your water. And I know for people that live in real moist climates that that probably sounds insane, but I've often told people, particularly here, don't put that oil all over your horse's foot. Let them be in water. Let the foot soak up, and then we actually pack our horses' feet with with clay um, whenever we can. And that's the whole. And I learned that from the racetrack. You know, if you c- keep those feet packed up with clay, it's like they have a natural protection and that circulation and that. I never thought of the dome shape as being helpful in the horse breaking over, and it's a soft and and uh, malleable surface, so it will tend to wear the way the horse needs it to wear, um, not on not unlike some of these fancy um, therapeutic shoes we're using today, like the clogs that you can sort of create that uh, same natural shape that standing in the mud will will help with. So that's very interesting. Thank you. Now. Tell me more about your foundation and what continuing research you're hoping to do. And um, yeah, tell me about that. Um, I'm happy to.
1: I want to just break off one thing for your listeners, if that's all right. And that is what, what can we do as owners for our horses? And um, here's my recommendation. Take a radiograph. So what I mean by that is this, is that we're good about vaccinating our horses. We're good about deworming, and that really extends our horses' lives. Most of the nerves are in their feet. The hoof capsule covers up a lot of changes that can go on in that foot. The farriers that's responsible for looking at that foot cannot see the bone because they don't have x-ray vision. And one of the best things you can do for your farrier is to have a lateral radiograph of each foot at least once a year. And the sooner you can see anything that might be going wrong, the sooner you can take care of it and the less pathology you're going to have. I think it's one of the best preventative medicine things that we can do for our horses because as I say most of the nerves are in their feet because it's hard to see where that bone is. We saw talked earlier about how quickly we get a low hoof pastern axis and I think it's it's just my suggestion. The other thing for your for listeners to do is to see if your horse is landing heel first. It's easy to do. Use your cell phone. Put it on slow motion. Have somebody walk your horse on a hard, flat surface. You stand off to the side and video that horse and go back and look and see if your horse is landing heel first. If they're not landing heel first, there's a problem. Um, if the feet are uneven in shape and the front feet aren't the same in their size, in their angles, in their heel height, there's a problem. So those are the three suggestions I would do for your owners if they're wanting to improve their horse and increase the longevity is video to see if they land heel first. See if the feet are symmetric in their size and then a radiograph yearly for your farrier.
0: That is really interesting. And again, I'm looking at the photographs you provided in the slide deck and all of that that you're describing is so clear and it's just these handful of photos that you've shared with us. And our viewers can find a link to this slide deck uh, just simply by looking at the show notes from wherever you got this podcast. I think that's um, really great take-home information and it's uh, it's a complicated relationship between the vet and the farrier and the owner of the horse. But ultimately, as the owners, we're responsible for, for doing the best we can for our horses. So I'm going to make a note to go ahead and get the lateral uh, radiographs of my horses. I can't wait to video the um, video i can do that this afternoon video um, and look for that um, whether or not that horse is landing heel first again one of the photographs i'm looking at in your slide deck shows that natural movement in a feral horse and um, it's interesting it's not not often what we're actually looking for when we assess a horses um, the quality of their movement so um, that's really great information. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now tell us a little bit more about your foundation.
1: So as you noted in the introduction, I s- started the foundation in 1994 and, um, you know, been busy, three, ch- three children and running the business. And so the um, amount of research we've done in the foundation has not been as much as I'd like. Plus the fact that It's rare for a veterinarian in practice to do research because we're taking care of colics, we're running a business, but it is such a passion of mine. And there's so much that needs to be learned that it's my goal that we can take some of the consistencies that we've seen in nature and apply them to the domestic horse to make our domestic horses sounder. So the research, we have a board of directors, and uh, they kind of decide what happens. We did a nice research project this summer when we measured stride length, stride frequency, blood flow, and load on the foot, whether the foot landed flat-footed or heel-first. same foot, we saw these horses differently and, and assessed them with acoustics, uh, which was very oh. helpful for us to be able to measure the decibels on different load patterns on these feet. So the foundation is doing some of the research. Getting these things published can be uh, difficult. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have a person give us $10,000 at the beginning of this year as a just a benefactor from one of his friends that spent the summer with us as a student learning. It's important that research is, carries the health of the horse forward, which means we need to educate. So we educate by on our one-on-one times when owners come into the clinic and we get a chance to review their horse's way of going, radiographs, foot health, changes in that after the horse has been shod uh, or trimmed. Sometimes we just trim horses. Hopefully we will get a farrier class, um, educational class done this winter. So it's it's learning, understanding, improving our knowledge and then passing that understanding forward to others.
0: Well, that's awesome work and it's a lot they those are lofty goals, <laughs> but at the end of the day what you're doing is helping horses and you know, anything we can do to address the physical issues that affect them every single day, it's it's tough because we don't always get to know what our horses are feeling or how they could be performing better. If they've been performing, uh, just getting by all this time and you think that's pretty good, how would you know they could be um, significantly better with just a little bit of help in alignment and and um, reduction of inflammation and pain and all that? So it's really important work. Where can we find out more about the foundation? I'm going to just
1: say one thing you prompted me to say is that if horses start to have trouble with their feet, they are usually not lame because it's both feet. So the things you will see as a rider or an owner showing that the horse is starting to get foot pain in both feet will be things such as a shortened stride, stride length, tripping, going downhill, and maybe a resistance to go in a tight circle. Horse feet will have more problems in a tight circle than going straight. So you might look for those things here as a rider to be an indicator that maybe something is starting. The sooner we get a chance to see these horses when things are just starting, it's cheaper, there's less pathology, there's less time off for the horse, and better results. So those are the three things you might want to look at. Where you can get more information on our website, which is IFE pr.org. There's a video on there, a 10-minute video that goes through this work that we did uh, on the wild horses and a little bit more detail about that and what it's done in the to, for our, to benefit our domestic horses. You're welcome to call my office. Um, they'd be happy to send you any of the papers that I've written, whether it's a radiographic method, which has been presented at some meetings, or whether it's this breakover paper that's Pretty technical. It's even got, <laughs> I, I had to stretch a little bit of paper because it's got a lot of trigonometry and calculus in it, but <laughs> you can oh wade boy. through that. Um, and then just general articles that have been written anywhere from the AQHA Journal to Horseman's Directory or Horseman's Journal, things like that. So we're happy to send send those articles to anybody that's
0: interested. And we can find your, um, Um, so ifepr.org is your website.
1: If you're interested in articles, better call my office, which is Colorado Equine Clinic. And they will be able to send you those papers, either electronically or in in, uh, written format.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Page. You've been so generous, not only with your time and sharing your research and your knowledge with us, but also in giving us real practical things to um, actually put into play with our horses today that we can start helping them in um, the hoof department. You know, we've all heard that uh, very, very old saying that's thousands of years old that says, no hoof, no horse. And everything you've said today has completely validated that in my mind. You've given me a lot to think about. I have some, uh, I I believe that I can develop a better eye for seeing these problems in horses at my clinics. (laughs) You you and I think of clinics differently. Of course, yours is a veterinary clinic. Mine is an instructional environment where I just deal with a lot of horses on a one-time basis. So I see a lot of horses every year. And I think as I learn more about the work that you're doing and this information you've shared, particularly looking at those photographs in the slide deck you've shared with us, I think I can help a lot of horses um, sort of indirectly. So I thank you personally for that. And again, you can find out more about the foundation at ifepr.org. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Page. And now you better get out there and start doing some more of that good work.
1: (laughs) Thank you so very much, Julie. Have a great day.
0: That was a lot of really valuable information from Dr. Page. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And as one more reminder to our listeners, you can find a link to the photographs and information that Dr. Page has shared with us in the show notes that's just below the episode description, wherever you get your podcast. And with all that fabulous information from Dr. Page, I'm afraid we've run out of time for What the hey Q&A this month, but I promise you we will get back to it next month. I've got some great questions in the queue. For the What the Hey Q&A segment, I'm going to give you a little extra time on that next month. I love sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback, your suggestions, and questions. It's been great to finally be back on the road again and to hear your in-person comments, too. I can't tell you how wonderful it is for me to hear from listeners of my podcast how much you're enjoying the show, what you're doing when you're listening to it, and what you'd like to hear more of. I'd love to hear the topics that interest you the most. So if you have questions for what the hay or podcast topics you'd like me to address, Please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. And here are a few tips for you. If you want your question answered on the air, please keep your question concise, use proper punctuation so I can read it properly out loud, and please proofread it before hitting send. Next month on my podcast, we'll cover another horsemanship topic to expand your knowledge and help make your horse life better. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. You can subscribe to my full training library with hundreds of videos, audios, and articles, all of it searchable content. Or you can enroll in a horsemanship short course on building confidence or join me at the premier level, the Interactive Academy, where you receive a 12-month training curriculum and personalized coaching from me. Just go to juliegoodnight.com join and start your ride. No matter where you are in your horsemanship journey, whether you're new to horses or an old hand, whether you're training a green horse or refining your higher level skills, I hope you found some helpful information here to make your horse life better. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. It helps me out a lot, and it helps us rise in the rankings, so more horse lovers like you and me find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe and enjoy the ride. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice if you enjoyed this podcast i'd really appreciate your good review on itunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast thanks for listening and don't forget to enjoy the ride